Well, good morning. What a great day to be in the Lord's house and to be able to gather with God's people, sing praises to God, and to be able to continue to grow in an understanding of the truth as delivered by the apostles that God has sent. So thankful um, to be in First John again with you this morning. We have been, for those of you that might not have been with us uh, up until this point, we've been in the First uh, John for quite some time, and we've learned some amazing truths in our time in this letter. At the beginning of chapter 3, John tells us that we are God's children now. If we are in fact in Christ, there is not a time that we will become more God's children than we are at this very moment. That God births us into the family of God, into the kingdom of God, and we are God's children now. That is a fantastic truth in difficult days to be reminded of. This letter of 1 John should continually strengthen and encourage each one of us. It should cause us to be humbled before the throne of grace that we have been called children of God. In spite of all that we are, in spite of all that we have done, in spite of any merit in us, only because of the grace of God, we are children of God. You know, Jesus says in Matthew uh, chapter 18, at this time, the Bible records, the disciples to Je- uh, came to Jesus saying, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Well, the verses that we have been dealing with for weeks now, months, really give us a foundation of our coming to Christ. We are His children, and so we can come humbly, obediently, permanently before the throne of grace, knowing that our identity as children of grace is not in ourselves, in our own doing, in our own decisions. It is in something that God and God alone has brought into our lives miraculously. You know, it's interesting. There's a way in which we can read Matthew 18 and Jesus instructing us that we have to come as little children and we read that almost as though it's solely dependent upon us. But when we move on into John's letter, we realize that this childlike dependence and state of adoring God for what God has done isn't in fact dependent upon us at all. It's dependent upon the reality that God has done in us, in spite of us. That should give us joy. That should cause us to worship and to give thanks for what He has done. That we are God's children now. Connected to the text that we are in today, certainly. But a a truth that has to permeate every word that we read from 3 on through the end of the chapter. You see, what John has been doing is he has been aiming at two fundamental realities in the Christian life. He's spoken of many various, uh, various kind of doctrinal realities. He's asserting his apostolic authority. He's, he's pointing to the reality that these false teachers in his day uh, were not actually called of God and only teaching that accords with Scripture ultimately 
uh, is authoritative and will edify the body of Christ, but in that teaching, in that asserting of his apostolic authority, he has laid down two fundamental realities in the Christian life, and that is that we can have fellowship with God and that we are his children that we have sonship, that we have been adopted in Christ, and that we have an advocate at the right hand of God the Father this morning. We've learned so much about what it looks like to actually have fellowship and to actually be a child of God. There are many people who will stand at the judgment, and they will say, Lord, Lord, And Jesus will say to them, depart from me, for I never knew you. There are many people who will say they have fellowship with God, who will say they have sonship, who say they are children of God, but in fact, in the final analysis, it will be revealed that they are not. And so it's important to take stock here of what John has said to this point about what genuine fellowship with God and genuinely being a child of God uh, brings into the life of an individual. One, we must guard the commandments of God. If, in fact, we've been made children of God, if we have the Holy Spirit residing in us, then the commands that uh, God has given us through the inspiration of the Spirit in the apostolic word and through the prophets, ultimately... Those are things that we as the children of God will delight in taking seriously. There is almost this reductionistic way in the church today of looking at a text, of looking at a verse, and doing everything that we possibly can to minimize it so that we justify ourselves before God, not by taking sober looks at the commandments of God, but merely robbing the commandments of God of their meaning. Friends, that's not a new exercise. That's what the Pharisees were up to a long time ago. That's what religious people have been doing for centuries. But we dare not do that. If we really are in fellowship with God, if we really do uh, have sonship, if we really have been adopted in uh, Christ, then we will be people who take the commandments of God seriously. We will take the words of God with reverence. We will pursue then, John says, clear doctrine. We will not be satisfied with all of the passing winds of theology in our day. We will want to know the truth. We live in a day where everybody can have their truth. I was speaking to an individual earlier this week and he said to me, we want to make sure that you can testify in this particular issue so that you can speak your truth. It was actually this morning, by the way, thanks to all of you who so graciously and kindly a year or so ago gave so that I could fix up my grandfather's truck. This past week, I was able to start driving it a little bit just in the neighborhood. We still have some licensing issues to clear up, but um, able to start driving it. I took Robbie through, well, we drove down, <clears throat> it is a 2001 rusted out Dodge pickup. His dashboard is in pieces. And it is such a joy um, to me. Anyway, I took Robbie this morning and we drove down PDV, uh, Pasea de Vaca, where all of the big fancy houses are. And I told Robbie, I said, look at that boy. All those people standing out there looking at us in this fancy truck. And he goes, Dad, I don't think they're looking at you in this truck for the same reason you think they're looking at you. And I said, boy, it is 2022 and my truth is that they are envious of this truck. 
We live in a day and age where truth is, is so subjective. Well, well, what you believe is good for you and what I believe is good for me. And friends, in the economy of our civic society and, and being able to live with one another in, in relative harmony and, and respecting one another, there may be some merit to some of that in some stratosphere. But I can tell you this, in the economy of God's Word, and when we stand before the holy God of the heavens, none of that subjective reality matters. The capital T truth that God has spoken to the saints once for all is what matters. And if we truly have fellowship with God, and if we truly are children of God, we will then pursue with kindness and charity clear doctrine, and we will also love one another. That's what John tells us. But what we find as we continue through this letter is that there's really no new doctrine that John will bring up. Everything from uh, verse 7 of chapter 4 through uh, verse, I believe, 12 of uh, chapter 5 is really a restating of what has already been delivered in John's writing to this point. Some people say, I can't stand when preachers are repetitious. Well, then you must not like the Bible. Because the Bible deals with the same themes over and over and over again. And in one letter, 1 John, we find John dealing with the same trajectories of thought over and over and over. And you know why that is? Because the, the, the Apostle John could have said these things succinctly one time. The problem isn't with him saying it one time. It's with us living it throughout all time. And so here John comes not with new doctrine in the remainder of what we have. And so you say, Jay, why in the world? Well, why don't we just wrap things up? Well, we need this truth. He's restating what he's already delivered. In verses 2 of chapter 5 through 4, he exhorts us to pursue holiness in our living to guard the commandments of God. In verses 5 of chapter 5 through verse 12, he argues with us that orthodoxy, that right belief, especially when it comes to the person and work of Christ, is something that is vital. And then from verse 13 on through the end of the letter, he summarizes what he's already said. And then here, beginning where we are today, in verses 7 through chapter 5, verse 1, we are exhorted in strong terms, again, that we are, if we are to have fellowship with God and to genuinely be able to stand flat-footed and say we are the children of God. We are to love the people of God. That is what John says. So with that in mind, if you would stand and do honor to the reading of God's Word as we begin with verse 7 of chapter 4. Remember John writing here not under his own thoughts, not under his own opinions, but under the inspiration of the God of the heavens. He says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that, he sent, that God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. In this is love, not that we have loved, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If, the, if we love one another, God abides in us and His love is perfected in us. 
By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us his spirit. And, he, and, and we have seen and testify that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he is God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love and whoever abides in love it abides in God and God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us. So that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. Because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment. And whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this is the commandment we have from him. Whoever loves God must also love his brother. Everyone, verse 1, who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. This is God's word to the church throughout the ages to us today. Would you pray with me? Father God, we come into your presence and we are so thankful for your word. We're so thankful that you exhort us through your apostle to love one another. And Father, we come acknowledging the reality that we have not done this well. We ask that you would write these truths upon all of our hearts that we would have a change of heart that we would repent of our views in uh, loving only out of natural means and that we would understand clearly what John is writing to us here, exhorting us to do. Father, we know that these believers who first uh, received these words changed the world in receiving this message and in living in the reality of its truth. And so, Father, I pray that no less would be true of us in our own generation, that we would genuinely love those that you have birthed anew for your glory. In Christ's name, amen. You may be seated. There's an interesting priority, isn't it? After all of the conversation that we have had from John about discerning, testing the spirits, right orthodoxy, right belief, uh, about um, guarding the commandments of God, of living a holy life. And, and John comes here, having finished laying down all of those doctrinal realities and all of those practical exhortations. And his first and primary uh, exhortation then is not, in light of this doctrine, holiness devoid from love or just orthodoxy removed from a group of people. No, the, the primary priority, the primary test that John gives us is that we as called children of God should love the body of Christ. The priority that John uh, of John in a practical outworking of the doctrine that he already has given us comes home to roost in how we engage one another. You see, we can never separate orthodoxy, that is right belief, from orthopraxy, that is to do what is 
Right. We, 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 can, we can never divorce those two things. But often, we as individual fallen sinners tend to want to fall into one of those two categories. I've known many people who want to pursue and are gifted intellectually to pursue orthodoxy, to look down throughout church history and to see all of the different things that the church has believed about a particular text or a particular topic. And they want to be right in what they believe. And friends, we shouldn't, we shouldn't be against that. We should all pursue right understanding of what the Scriptures teach. It's not wrong. Now, I think that that particular category of people in our general uh, Christian circles in our day and age is, uh, is a group of people that not a lot of individuals really uh, take kindly to. Because we live in a time that is beyond the enlightenment where we are told, again, everybody can have their own truth. Everybody can have their own view. Everybody can believe whatever they want. And so orthodoxy ends up being anathema in the context of the modern Christian movement. But in the, in the economy of the Word of God, it's a very important thing. It just so happens that, that we can't just live there. We also have to practice out the implications of that orthodoxy. And then there's the group of people who say, look, I'm just interested in doing what is right and helping my neighbor. I just... This absolutely flies in the face of all logic, but I hear it so many times in so many different areas of Christendom today. I don't really want to concern myself with orthodoxy or doctrine. I just want to preach the gospel. Okay, well, you're going to have to define what the gospel is. And the second that you do that, you are now a theologian, Lord help us all. People will say, well, we're called to be loving. We need to love. We need to love. There are so many people who will, 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 will preach sermons of loving others well, but, but that love needs to be defined. It needs to find its moorings in the Bible. And when we don't, John's big emphasis here is orthopraxy. It is, it is a right way of loving the body of Christ. But he doesn't get very far in his exhortation. Beloved, let us love one another for love is from God and whoever uh, loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God. Why? That is all up to that point an orthopraxy statement, a, a, a practical reality that John is exhorting us to. But then hard stop, you know what? We hit this theological wall and he says God is love. He deals in terms of orthodoxy. He wants us to practice the reality of love in our lives, not just because it is a good thing, not because it will fix the society, not because it will make us feel better, but because there is this reality that the maker of the heavens and the earth, the one who owns you and I, and who we will one day stand before, is in fact through and through love. He deals in, 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 in categories of theology so that he can then move out and encourage us in the way that we live. And friends, is not this encouragement in the life of the New Testament believer to love the body well, is that not a repeated theme all throughout the Scripture? Friends, when we come into 
the church in our generation, there are so many different teachings about what a church is and how a church should be structured and all of those things. And we need to be careful about who we uh, believe in all of those different arguments. In fact, that's what John has just told us. We need to test the spirits and we need to make sure that what the individual teachers in particular churches are teaching actually accords with what the apostles and the prophets have taught. You see, if we're going to get the church right, we need to make sure that what we're doing in the church uh, passes a threefold test. We need to see that Jesus teaches that particular practice in the Gospels as He is walking in His earthly ministry. We also need to see the church living that out in the book of Acts in the first century church. And then we also need to see the apostles clarifying how the church is to function in their pastoral letters. And friends, I would tell you that nothing is more emphasized in those three veins than the love that we should have one for another in the body of Christ. And yet I will tell you that I don't think that we've defined it well in the body for generations. We've picked up the world's definition of what it means to love. And we've set about building our church according to how the world loves. And then we throw up our hands and we go, why in the world is the church falling apart? Because you are loving and I love out of an understanding of what we just absorbed through the culture and not what God has said through the text. You see, Jesus in John chapter 34 says, a new commandment I give to you. That you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this all people will know that you are my disciples. If you have love one for another. There is this great exhortation and this great emphasis that Jesus is pointing to. I am calling you to love one another radically, intentionally, in a way that generations before have not understood. And then we see in Acts the, the, the first century church loving one another by preaching truth, by serving, by giving, by laying down their lives for the reality of the gospel. I believe you and I are the beneficiaries of, uh, of believers in that particular context who did not water down or compromise the truth, but lived in the face of persecution so that we could have the word of God and the truth of God as the foundation of our lives. And then we also see the reality of the apostles in these New Testament letters all over the place dealing with and echoing one another in the reality that we are to love one another. If we think about uh, what we heard read this morning in 1 Corinthians 13, Paul exhorts the church to love one another and, and what that real love looks like. Paul is saying in 1 Corinthians chapter 13 that there is a way that the world loves, but that is not the love that the Bible speaks of. That is not the love that Jesus commanded us to have one for another. And so he goes down through the entire list of what loving really looks like. You see, ultimately what John is doing here is he's going back to the two-pronged approach of testing our faith and exhorting us in that faith. He is saying, if you do not love one another, you cannot claim that you are a child of God. But if you find in some measure that you actually love the church of God, 
Then, beloved, continue to grow in that love. Continue to be strengthened in that love. Continue to spend all of your effort and your energy in loving one another in the body of Christ because this is the true test of the faith. The reality, all of this doctrinal teaching, again, he he does not make the test of genuine faith, of genuine belief, mere orthodoxy. Now that's, again, important. Uh, We will never love correctly. We will never love rightly by believing falsehoods. We will never love. It's interesting that in our generation, so many people will say, you can have your truth and I'll have my truth and we can just love one another. The problem is, is that if I love according to my truth and you love according to your truth, we're never actually going to get to loving one another at all. What we wind up with is just loving ourselves and our own views of what love really is. But none of these doctrinal things are the ultimate test. The test is simply, do you love the church? Do you love the church that Christ redeemed? And I I believe that this this question shouldn't be one where we just go, well, yeah, I mean, I like some people in my church. Some. And we just think in our own context. I, I don't think that's what John is talking about here. And I think that we have the fullest weight of the question in the year 2022 than the first century church had. You know why? Because we have more of the church to love. We can look back throughout church history and we can see the church that that God has been raising up throughout the generations by His own grace, through the working of His Spirit, according to the works of Christ, and right on time with the plan that God set down before the foundation of the world. We can see that church coming into existence for 2,000 years. And I believe part of the question is whether or not we love the church throughout the ages. Whether or not the whole church is really our heart. Now, I think there are some brothers and sisters who love the historical church. They love to study about what the church has been. They love to think through ecclesiology and all of those things. But then they come down to their local church context and that church I'm not so sure about. Well, see, the breadth of of John's question, I think, encompasses the entire church. All of it. There's this, this questioning of really practicing out then in our own context with the brothers and sisters that God has providentially put in our path. Do we love these individuals? Do we actually act upon the love that we say we have received from God? You see, it's possible, what John is doing is he's confronting us with the reality that it's possible to be correct in many areas of theology and not be a Christian at all. We can have great intellectual understandings of many different doctrines, and yet it is possible to believe the right theology, to love the right doctrinal truths, and yet not love the church that God has given you to love. Now this, is, this has been an ongoing problem throughout church history. There have been many who have been perfectly orthodox. And yet in the end we find individuals. And this is coming to a... I was talking to Sarah and some friends last night about pastors, teachers. That's, it drives my wife nuts. I'll go, I think that that person's a problem. 
I think that I know that they have thousands and millions of followers and what they're saying sounds really good, but I'm telling you something doesn't sound right. And and I'm not suggesting that I'm the test. My subjective view is. But then what we see in the culture right now over and over and over is people either being found out to have not acted in love at all, to be abusive, those kinds of things, or individuals who say, you know what, I'm not a Christian at all. I've been teaching these doctrines. I've been standing in the pulpit for decades. But I've come to the realization that the church is just broken. And it's beyond repair. And there is nothing that I want to do with the church of God. So I am not a believer anymore. You can be in church for decades. The question isn't, do you know all of the Christian language? The question isn't, do you have all of the the doctrines down, although that's important. The question is, do you love your brothers and sisters in Christ out of the seat of what you understand in the Word of God? And so the question that is posed to each one of us this morning is, do we love our church? Do we look at the church throughout the ages with all of her warts and all of her wrinkles and all of the mistakes that she's made, and do we love her? Friends, there's this great push in different theological circles, and some people will call it by different labels that I'm not going to get into today, but there's this emphasis to look at the church throughout history and the church in America or whatever particular time period and to find areas where the church was weak and to find areas where maybe the church didn't love well and then for individuals to go to war against the church at those points. Can I tell you something? Individuals that do that, if they have doctrine, doctor, reverend, knothead before their name, if they are seeking to tear apart the church, do yourself a favor and turn that nonsense off. Because the test is, do you, do you love the church? You may know a lot of things about the church. There are men that know church history it's obnoxious. I've, I've seen men who can get up and they, there was a brother one time that gave a talk on the denominational implications of such and such movement in the United States from this year to this year. And he walked into the podium, and I do believe this brother loves the Lord, but he walked into the podium with nothing in his hands and just extemporaneously started spouting off this trajectory of all church history. And I'm like, that is all just in your brain? It's totally not fair. Um... But even having all of that in your brain doesn't prove that you, in fact, are a child of God and that you have fellowship with God. What proves that reality is if you really love the body. It's important that we we pause and we meditate on this question. You see, again, orthodoxy is important. Right belief is important, but it's not the ultimate test. Faith is important. There's a lot of people that say, well, I have my faith. That's fine. The question is, is not whether or not you say you have faith. Remember Paul speaking of love in chapter 13 of 1 Corinthians. If I have all faith, 
It's not the ultimate test. So as to remove mountains, but do not love, I am nothing. If I give away all that I have and I deliver my body uh, to be burned, but I have not love, I gain nothing. The ultimate test in our life is whether or not we genuinely love the body of Christ. It's, It's interesting how not even holiness is the prominent test here. This test of whether or not we love the body of Christ really ultimately qualifies everything else. If you don't love the body of Christ, you're not orthodox. And if you do not love the body of Christ, I don't care how moral you are. I don't care if you've never smoked anything, drank anything, you've never run with anybody. If you are the most shining example of morality and you are the next best thing to Jesus, but you don't love the body of Christ, mark it down, you have not an ounce of holiness in you. To be holy is to love the church of the living God. To love those who have been born of God. Now that doesn't again mean that holiness is, is, is nothing. Galatians chapter 6 verse 7. Do not be deceived, Paul writes. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, <clears throat> that he will also reap. Or chapter 6 of 1 Corinthians. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Holiness matters, friends. But loving the body of Christ matters more. Because the reality is, orthodoxy can be faked. Holiness can be just merely a facade, but lovingly laying down your life for the body is something that is really hard to fake. And you know why? Because the bride of Christ is a mess this side of glory. Genuinely loving people who drive you nuts will test you to the nth degree. This is the test of all tests. This is the genuine test that, that John has laid down before us. Do we love the body? Now he, he's laying this down as a test, but he's also exhorting us. And, and so if this is also an exhortation and not merely a test, if he's telling the body, you need to love one another more, beloved. You need to go on and grow in your loving one another. Then I think the right question to come to this text with is, well, what kind of love is this that he speaks of? As he says, beloved, let us love one another. What is he speaking of? Well, I think we have to come to just a simple phrase. Friends, I think that we far too often look at phrases in the Bible and we go, yeah, that's simple. But then we don't meditate. We don't chew on the simplicity of that reality and how profound it is in the way that we should repent and live our lives differently. Love one another. What he's pointing to there is this is a love that is first and primarily aimed at relationships inside the body. Look at what he says at the end of verse 1 of chapter 5. And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of Him. The qualification of what he's talking about in this passage is not an ethereal, general, agape type love to everyone. It is a type of love that is aimed at the body of Christ, at the redeemed of God, at those who God set His love upon before the foundation of the world. Do you love that church? That is the question. So many people today speak of love towards the world. 
And they do that while tearing down the church. And that's not biblical love. And and this seemingly is always tied to some type of evangelistic zeal. Well, we're done with the church and we're tired of all of our problems. And we just need to love the world and then everyone will come to Jesus. How's that working out for you? People are burning things in the streets. They're constantly angry at everything. They're constantly crying about every problem in their life is somebody else's issue. And there's no personal responsibility. And if we just love that world that is in the power of the evil one and we forget the church, then somehow God will be glorified. That doesn't accord with the scriptures. That is not what the Bible teaches. It's kind of like this idea of, well, I'm really loving and I love people outside the body of Christ and the church is just a mess. That is like getting into a life raft to go downstream into a community of flooded homes seeking to rescue people from their homes in the flooding, all the while tearing the boat to pieces as you float along. It's stupid. I shouldn't use the word stupid. That's not loving. We can't tear the body of Christ apart. That's the point. Loving the church is of utmost importance if we are going to be a witness to a lost and dying world. So it means that we have to look in in 1 Corinthians, and I think this is the best place to really get a definition of what John is talking about here in loving one another. The, The question is, do we love one another in such a way that we are not puffed up, that we're not easily provoked, that that we are not thinking evil of one another, that we are not rejoicing over evils that happen in one another's lives, that we are hoping for good things and that we are looking for the best in other people. I found inside the body of Christ so often that there's this kind of attitude towards people who are struggling in, in their sanctification. That's not loving. That's not kind to one another. This kind of love is not the love of the world. Again, Matthew chapter 5, Jesus here points to the reality that, John, that Paul speaks of as well, that there's a difference between the love of the world and the love inside uh, the body. Matthew 5, verse 46, For if you... If you love those who love you, what reward will you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same. We're not to love one another. We're not to define love in the same terms that the world loves. If you do things that are good for me, if, you're, if you like me, if you're my friends, if you like me, then I'll love you. That's not the kind of love that is to be found in the church of Christ. We are to love out of what, how we have been loved in Christ. There's so many people that will come into a church and they will judge the body and say, well, I'm not going to invest my time there because I just don't think these people love me. And they will get out their list of what they conceive the church should be. And if the church doesn't mark off all of their little check boxes, then it's just not a loving church. Because what are they doing? The litmus test for them is, does the church live up to my standard? That's not love at all. In the context of Scripture. They'll make an argument that. Well ultimately. I have to have my love tank filled. If I'm going to love other people. Okay. Jesus died on a cross for you. So that you wouldn't go to hell. Love tank is full. Arguments ended. 
We don't love out of how other people treat us in the body of Christ. We love out of the reality that God sent His only begotten Son into the world at the right time and He atoned for our sins and is interceding at the right hand of God this moment. So if someone does something that drives us up the wall or or, or has a preference in the church that we don't like, amen anyhow. We're the redeemed people of God. We are called children of God. So we are. So we can love out of what Christ has done, not out of the subjective qualities in others. Friends, all of this, if we hear it rightly, will bring us to conviction. John is saying that we are to love the body, not because she is always lovely, but because every member is a child of God now. We are to love one another in this room in such a way that it demonstrates to a lost and dying world those people really believe that the God of the heavens sent His only Son to atone for each other's sin. They really believe that. They're not sitting around with lists of of moral checklists of how they think each other should. They are just loving one another in the body of Christ. They're speaking truth to one another. They're encouraging one another. They're exhorting one another. They believe this group of people loves each other in such a way that, 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 that demonstrates they genuinely believe this Jesus that they say redeemed them from their sin is actually coming back. That's the whole tone and tenor of their love. It's all aimed at Him. Friends, we should fall to our faces in in light of that reality because all of us have a tendency in our day and age to love according to the preferences that are in our sinful hearts. You see, love means that we separate ourselves from all of the problems that others bring in with them. We don't live on those things. We don't major on those difficulties. We focus on the Son of God, on Christ, and we show compassion and mercy to others. John moves on in making this exhortation a a solemn warning. John puts all that he is saying into poetic language. I, I think it's interesting as we talk about orthodoxy. One of the things that we have to be mindful of in the church is that times there are going to be different um, styles. Uh, The truth doesn't change, but the presentation of that truth can change. And friends, one example of that is that you see Paul writing about love in 1 Corinthians. And Paul is a very linear thinker. Doctrine, 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 application, application, application. I love Paul because he's so easy to preach. So just... Makes sense. John, I think, has a severe case of ADD. (laughs) Not really. I think John is more poetic in the way that he expresses himself to the church. And so he makes some doctrinal statements, but then he kind of goes into an excursus on you need to love one another, you need to guard the commandments, and then he comes back to some more doctrine, and and then he goes back into the practical application of it. And, And that's what we find here, John being more poetic. He doesn't begin with the big doctrine first. He begins with the exhortation. He ends with the doctrines. It's interesting. The difference is in style, and yet these brothers, were both called and commissioned under the inspiration of the Spirit to be authoritative in their writing of Scripture. You see, what we see in that is the beauty of diversity in the body. That God uses people that are are really different in their composition to achieve His end of bringing glory to Himself and truth and dispelling the lies of Satan. See, John says, Beloved, let us love one another. 
Whoever loves has been born of God. And then he puts it in a negative. Anyone who does not love does not know God. And then at the very end, he puts the foundational reason. Why? Because God is love. Now again, Paul would start the exact opposite fashion if he was dealing with this. Love is, and then he would define that, and then he would go on to apply that to the particular argument about spiritual giftings or whatever the issue at hand is. But here... John has landed with God is love. And what a humbling statement. God is love. It's a statement that proves the doctrine of radical depravity. Doesn't say God loves sometimes. Doesn't say God is loving. John says God is is love in everything that he does in all of his actions in all of his decrees in everything that he exhibits in all of his being God is love through and through who wants to stand up today and say I am love you know why you can't say that because the fall is a reality because sin has impacted every one of our lives and we by nature don't love well We, by nature, want everyone to love the way we want to. And we want things organized our way. And it turns out that that's not love at all. I mean, take the person that you love the most in this world. Maybe it's a spouse. Maybe it's a a parent or a teacher or a friend. And here's the question. Have you loved that uh, individual constantly, totally, and eternally? Have you loved that individual every moment of every day? And your answer is going to be no. Well, then have you, have you made it through one day where you have loved that individual in a complete, holistic way like you should? And the answer has to be no. And so this demonstrates to us in our lives the doctrinal reality that we don't love out of our own seat of being good and loving people. No, we are totally depraved people who, in fact, if we are going to be loving first, have to be loved by the holy God of the heavens. We have to get our love from him. You see, John doesn't say here again that God is loving, that he does loving things. He says God is love. Love is who he is. It is his nature. It's what he does in all ways. It's interesting if you turn quickly back to 1 John chapter uh, 1 verse 5, we find another statement that is similar. God is light. God is holy. God is completely pure and he is other from his creation and in that holiness in that light is the reality that God is also love it's a mind-blowing statement it's a statement that should fuel our love one for another Augustine and some of the other church fathers in fact pointed to this one phrase God is love as the ground the basis A leading off point of teaching the doctrine of the Trinity. That God the Father loves God the Son and God the Spirit loves God the Father and glorifies the Son. That there is this perfect and complete love inside the Trinity. That that He didn't have to emanate into other people uh, His love. He didn't have to demonstrate His love to this world so that He could be loving. He is loving in and of Himself. (laughs) 
Again, love is not something he does on occasion. It's something that he is. And so this means, John says, that we ought to love one another. And John gives us, quickly, three reasons. One, he says, Beloved, let us love one another. Why? For love is from God. His first reason of why you should love one another is not because you have the same preferences, the same backgrounds, the same anything. The reason you should love one another is because you are children of God and, the, and love flows from God. God. Love doesn't, again, come from us naturally. Love emanates only from God in His person and His being. You see, this isn't and can't be, that this love can't be the same concept of what the world speaks of in love. This is a new concept altogether. Jesus having said, I give you a new commandment. This is something that, that, that is particular to the body of Christ. That we love one another in a way that is completely different from the world. This is a love that flows from God. A, a love that can only be understood as we behold the glory of God in the person and work of Christ. In, in Christ laying down His life for His disciples. For those who would call upon His name. For those who God had ordained would believe in Him for salvation. We see the love of God differently through the lens of Christ and the cross. You see, there's constantly this danger allure of looking to the world to know how to be loved or what is loving. There is such a self-centered way that we tend to conceive of being loved in the body. I, I've heard people say these very things and, and about our church. Well, I, I just don't think our church is very loving. Well, why? Well, because they just don't do this and this and this and this. And these other people out there that don't even know Jesus, they love me that way. Do you know how bankrupt that is? Their love is going to die. It will have the world outside, and I mean this kindly, but it's just the truth. The lost and dying world, their love will be under the condemnation of God for all of eternity. You know why? Because we flip the statement. John says, God is love. But our generation says, love is God. Love me the way I want to be loved. Treat me the way I want to be treated. Let me be the standard of all of the universe. Fact, implicitly, and being loved in the way that you want to be loved is the reality that you want to be God. And so we live in this reality where we have to be very careful not to buy into the illusion that the world can love better than the church. There's no doubt that the church it struggles to love well. That's why we have this exhortation. A guilty is charged on all accounts. Every one of us need this reality. And we need this to soak into our mindset. And we need to turn in repentance in many areas. And, and we do struggle to love one another well and completely in the way that God would have us. And we will struggle all throughout our lives. But the fact is, love does not flow from a world that is in the power of the evil one. Love is from God alone. Secondly, we love because it evidences our new birth. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God. What makes us a Christian is not that we are loving people. 
In fact, we don't have the capacity to love outside of God regenerating our hearts and birthing us anew into His kingdom and giving us love in our hearts towards Him and towards others. Because love is from God. We love Him. Why? Because He first loved us, John says. We're not Christians because we're smart. Because we're defenders of the faith because we believe the right things in orthodoxy we're not christians because we're moral people or that god found us in a state of innocence we are christians only because of grace and so we love only because god has been loving to us and he has shown us kindness in christ we can only love if we have been made partakers of the divine nature I mean, look at the world, really. The world's constantly bantering about love. Love is so important. And again, this, this thought, let it permeate your mind that the world has perverted the statement God is love into the statement love is God. And the, and the world is constantly saying that we need to love one another. That we need, to, we need to be encouraging to one another. That we need to, and they put these big banners of what that kind of love really looks like. But they never actually live up to the definitions they themselves lay out of what love really is. And the standard in the world constantly changes. But when we are rooted in the love of God, it is a kind and quality of love to our brothers and sisters of, in Christ. That because it emanates from God, it doesn't change. And we ultimately show forth that we have been born of Him. You see, it's no use looking at a lost and dying world and telling them, you need to love the way that Jesus has loved me. Because until you come to the point where God has made you a new creature in Christ, by His grace alone, you can't live up to this. Remember, going back to verse 1 of chapter 3, see what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called, that we should be the called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world doesn't know Him is that it did not know us. We have been made children of God. And so we love out of that reality. We continue then to mature in our love, to grow in our love, to seek to build one another up in love, but we know that we fail all the while. See, this kind of love for the body can only be in us if we are in Him. There are people that will come in and they will pronounce perfect doctrine. They'll be moral. They'll think that they have all of their ducks in, the ro in a row. And yet they're the kind of people, and it's so sad to see this, and I think this is what John is warning against. People that, that, that seemingly, well, I believe this because I'm in fill in the blank, or you know, they, they have some place to stand morally and doctrinally. But then they go about backbiting other people, talking about individuals in the body of Christ behind their backs, uh, tearing one another down, seeking to build themselves up, glorying in the shame of others, laughing, mocking, all of those things. And all the while, what they are doing is they are demonstrating they've never been born of God. What John is saying here is 
God is love. And if I say that I've been born again, if I say that I've been given a new nature, if I say I've been regenerated, then there must be some form of love in me towards the body of Christ. Is that going to be perfect? No. Are we going to sin against one another? Yes. But there will be an affection. There will be a love. There will be a desire to lay down our lives one for another and for the glory of God. Whoever, whoever loves has been born of God. It is the test. It does demonstrate our new birth. And lastly, love for one another evidences that we actually have a knowledge of God. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. Whoever loves has been born of God and finally knows God. And this should be an encouragement to us. If you've been listening rightly, there's this pit in the bottom of your stomach where you go, oh, I stink at loving the body of Christ well. There's a list of things that I have not done in loving my spouse well, my children well, who are my nearest neighbors in the body of Christ. So I know that when we move out into the greater body of Christ, I stink at this. Well, friend, the encouragement is that we can continue to grow and to begin to know who Christ is. And in knowing him, we begin to grow in love. If you're looking at, at Christ and the way that you love and saying, I, I, I have a long way to go. Well, friends, that's the whole point. This should also be a war warning if you think that, man, I am an, I'm a shining example of loving well. I am so good at loving my church. Well, I think that John would say, you need to slow down and consider Christ afresh and anew. You need to be instructed again about who Jesus was and how perfect He was in His loving that you might grow. You see, the more that we know of Jesus, the more that we know, we'll come to know that God is loving. And again, if we think back to what Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 13, we will again see that as we mature in Christ, we will grow in loving the body more and more. Nobody loves the church on the first day of their conversion the same that they will if they are actually in Christ on their last day of life. Paul says, for we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. But when I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I will know fully, even as I have been fully known. How do we know how to love one another, church? How do we know what is the biblical method of loving the body of Christ? It is by knowing Christ Himself. You see, what happens is when we're young in the faith, we come to know different um, propositional truth, different things about God. We teach our children the attributes of God. We need to learn the attributes of, of God ourselves as adults so that we know who He is. My wife was teaching our youngest, Bennett, uh, about God's omnipotence, his, his power over, excuse me, his omnipresence, his, his, his being in all places at all times. And uh, Bennett, in his little six-year-old mind, looked up at Mama this week when she was telling him all of this and said, so when I sneeze, does that mean I'm sneezing on God? And you see, that's an interacting with a propositional truth devoid of the 
the really the personhood in some sense. But what happens in the real life of a Christian is that we move on from merely the, the, the truths that we know about God and we know Him. We experience fellowship with Him, as John says. We experience the joy of knowing Him even in the face of a fallen world. And we begin to grow away merely from academic expressions of who the living God is. And we can tell you the qualities of our Father who is in heaven, who has loved us with an everlasting love and who has set His love upon us, not because of any merit in us, but only because He is gracious and wise and loving. You see, Paul is, is kind of saying that when he writes these things in 1 Corinthians 13. He's saying in the context of his making this argument about spiritual giftings. Look, church, at one time I was interested in gifts. But I'm not so concerned with who gets what gifts anymore. Now I just want to know the giver. My, my knowledge has become the, the, the knowledge not merely of a thing, but a knowledge of a person. And my my, my knowledge of the person increases as that happens. I want to know him more. You will find Paul constantly saying time and time again throughout the scriptures, I want to know the living God. And it is only in that knowing him that we know how to love one another well. So your lost friend who you think really loves you well doesn't even begin to understand what love is if they don't know Jesus Christ. That's the only area we can have a foundation for knowing how to love well. Because He is love. Now, isn't it interesting how we began with the expression and the reality that's startling? That doctrine is not the supreme test. That the, the test of our faith is not do we believe the list of right things. And yet, if we really are walking in love, we will never get away from doctrine. We will never be able to separate the supreme love that God has from us from our doctrinal understanding. We will, in fact, love because God loved us. That will manifest the reality that we are born of God and we will show that we are continually growing in our doctrinal understanding. Knowing leads to love and love really keeps us growing in our knowledge of Him. So here's some things to know. We aren't loved because we're lovely. One of the marvels of my life is to continue to Look, and I am the least example in this body, but to think of the ways in which the Lord has grown me in my own walk with Him. And I think about the young man that first came to Christ at a young age. And I think about all the different things the Lord has used providentially in my life to grow me closer to Himself and to give me an appreciation for His Word and to give me a love for His body. And I marvel at the reality of all of those things but you know, I've never been able to arrive at one thing in and of myself that would ever cause God to love me in that way. To continue to pursue me. To continue to bear with me as I'm a knothead. Uh, there's nothing in me. Amos chapter 3 verse 2. God says to the nation of Israel, You only have I known of all the families of the earth. Now what does that mean when he uses the word no? Does that mean that God was unaware of all of the other nations in the world at that time when Amos wrote this? 
No, God knew. He had an awareness. He's saying, you only have I loved. You are a particular people. I have set my love upon you. The reason I love you is because I am the God of all the earth and I can show mercy to whom I will show mercy. It is up to me. That's what he's saying. Well, friends, can I tell you something? In the New Testament economy, we have no less of an encouragement in Romans chapter 8. And we know, there's that word know again. We're going to have to know some things if we're really going to love well. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for their good. For those who are called according to His purpose. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son. In order that we might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom He predestined, He also called. And those He called, He also justified. And those whom He justified, He glorified. So what does the word foreknow mean? Does it mean that God learned something and that He came to an awareness of a group of people and and, and that's what happened? God has not ever had to learn one thing. He's saying to us the same thing that He said to the nation of Israel in the book of Amos, for those that I foreloved. For those that I set my love upon. Those are the ones that I will call. Those are, the, those are the ones that I predestined. Those are the ones I will call. Those are the ones I will sanctify. Those are the ones that I will glorify. Can I tell you what an encouragement Romans 8.28 is? In, the, in, in context to this exhortation to love well. It's that I don't have to wake up in the morning going, if I love the church well enough today then all of the work of God and all of the redemptive purposes of God will come to pass. No, I can stand flat-footed knowing all of the redemptive purposes of God will come to pass. And that is the foundation that I have to love this body well. Not because they are what I want them to be today, but because the greater truth remains that everyone who is in this room today, who loves the church, who is called according to His purpose, who will stand before Him in glory for all of eternity, will be glorified according to the standard of the holy God of heaven. I can love out of that reality. No one has to be perfect because God is perfecting every one of us. It's only when we know that we are loved with an eternal love A love that doesn't begin with us in any way, shape, or form. That we actually begin to understand the definition of love that John is talking about. John did not have an economy to understand love as something you do in light of what the person does who is the object of your love. John understood love to be something that is freely given by kindness and grace and mercy alone. And so that informs how we also are to love. You see, John says it differently in his gospel about our coming to salvation and our beginning of understanding Jesus as our Lord and Savior. He says, But to all who did receive Him, who believed in His name, He gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. 
So when we talk about love, when, when John breaks onto the scene in verse 7 of this letter and he says, beloved, beloved, let us love one another. When we nail down that word love and what it means, we can know in context of verses 12 and 13 of, of uh, John's Gospel chapter 1 that we are not talking about a love that is of blood, of the flesh, or of man we can know wholeheartedly that we are talking about a love that is only of God. That begins with Him and that ends with Him. We are talking about the love of God that has taken us from our darkness and transferred us into marvelous light by grace alone, through faith alone. So as we go on in our lives from that point, that's the starting point, friends. If you want to know why it's so important to understand how the church comes into being, how someone is converted, why when we called all of these missionaries, where's Rachel? When we called all of these missionaries and we asked them, what is conversion? Do you know why we were asking that question? Because at the root of that question, we are asking, how are you going to love everyone that is under the sound of your ministry? And if the answer to that question of what is conversion ever begins, well, well, that's when a person, we've lost love completely. But when we look to the Word of God and we know that the foundational reality of why we are a believer today is only by grace. It is from there that we can go on learning who Christ really is. And we can really begin to express love towards the body. You see, we will be reminded and instructed in Christ and in His love for us and We will love in ways that ultimately bring glory to Him that are not about our blood relationships, about our flesh, or about our own wills. We will love with the reality that Christ is returning soon and we will worship Him for all of eternity, not because we were loving people, but as John says, because He first loved us. We will love because it flows from God. We will love because we are born of God. And we will love because we go on knowing who God is by grace alone. Would you pray with me? Father God, we come into your presence acknowledging the reality of our sin and seeking to love your body out of our own will, our own flesh, and for our own reasons. Father, we have sought your glory instead of seeking to bring you glory. We've loved your body in ways so often that end and terminate with ourselves being the beneficiary. It's not the love that John speaks of. So I pray that you would impress upon our hearts and mind what it really means to love others well. That we look at individuals in the body of Christ and we hope the best for them, we pray for them, Uh, We lavish our kindness upon them. Where we see weaknesses, we don't seek to tear down, but to encourage and to edify. We don't insist on our own way. Father, might we be a church that is immersed in your word and, and continually growing and understanding who you are 
that we, we might lay down our lives in love one for another. Father, we thank you for this exhortation this morning. We thank you for the opportunity in the weeks ahead to continue to grow in what it means to love one another well. Father, might we not be individuals who love only in thought, but also